are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Malcolm X, which came out in 1992, and was directed by Spike Lee. It stars Denzel Washington, Angela Bassett, Albert Hall, Al Freeman Jr., Delroy Lindo, Spike Lee, Teresa Randall, Kate Vernon, Lynette McKee, Tommy Hollis, and James McDaniel. The genre would be political biopic. He was a man of many names and a disciple of many faces. From pusher to preacher, from convict to statesman, he brought honor to disobedience and a voice to a people who longed to be heard. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Denzel Washington's most electrifying performance. Director Spike Lee's most powerful film. What better way is there to describe this film as one man's life? One man's extraordinary life? Or maybe one extraordinary man's life? It's not hyperbole to call Malcolm X extraordinary. As his story is one which started under pretty tragic circumstances and ended under very tragic circumstances, you would think that it would be easier to fill in everything which happened in between. And that would be one of the overriding concerns amidst the controversy leading up to this film's release in 1992. This was the fifth film to be directed by Spike Lee, and he had already made quite a name for himself in the six years prior. He had directed the seminal, and likely his best film overall, Do the Right Thing in 1989, which had a conclusion focused on police murdering a young black man on a public street and the riot which immediately followed afterwards. It was a fearless ending for a fearless movie, and one that left quite an impression on anyone who saw it. And in the years immediately after Do the Right Thing took the world by storm, Spike would continue to direct very strong films with some strong messages, including previous episode Jungle Fever one of my favorites. And not even the most ardent fans of these films, or him, would refer to them as subtle. So let's just say that the general expectations for this movie were for something quite incendiary. And honestly, rewatching it now decades later, the only true incendiary aspect of this biopic is how thorough it is regarding the dramatically different incarnations of this individual throughout the 40 years of his eventful life. Yes, it's an inspiring story of how he found his soul and a true calling through joining and eventually becoming a prime spokesman for the Nation of Islam. But it also delves into the corruption at the highest levels of that religious sect, along with Malcolm's own culpability with regards to the controversy that he would stir up, and the ugliness of so many other American institutions that he encountered along the way. Whether it be law enforcement or Christian leadership, or even local leaders of the Harlem Renaissance while he was there hoofing around in the 1940s. We start off with him as a young man living in Boston, aimless and cocky. The first scene of the movie kicks off with young Malcolm Little at a barber shop, 
about to experience the scorching unpleasantness of having his hair conked for the first time. This was, and unfortunately still is, a common practice among many black Americans to make their hair straighter. Now, as a director, Spike mainly plays this scene for laughs. But the sad truth is there from the get-go. Malcolm is just one of millions of black Americans who have been brought up to feel inferior to white people. And as a result, they feel pressured to go to such extreme lengths of literally burning their hair at the scalp to better fit in. We also see this in many painful flashbacks of Malcolm's childhood. His preacher father being murdered by white supremacists, his mother being wrongly committed. But one scene which receives special attention from Lee is much less dramatic, but no less affecting. Malcolm is now an orphaned preteen, the only black kid within an otherwise white class. And he's been thriving academically and even making friends. This scene, however, focuses on his teacher, effectively played by David Patrick Kelly. We all like you here, you know that. But you're a nigger, and a lawyer is no realistic goal for a nigger. But why not Ostrowski? I get the best grades in class. I got voted class president. I want to be a lawyer. No, I want you to think about something that you can be. You're good with your hands. Making things. People would give you work. I would myself. Why don't you become a carpenter? That's a good profession for a colored. Wasn't your pa a carpenter? Jesus was a carpenter. Throughout Spike and Arnold Pearl's biting screenplay, which was adapted from Alex Haley's biography of Malcolm, itself often taken from many of Malcolm's own autobiographical writings, we see a plethora of moments like this. Condescension through Christian figures, even though these folks he encounters are clearly not following Jesus' teachings. I can see this has become a struggle between good and evil. Satan has a question. <laughs> yes, sir, Chaplain Gill, but since neither one of us are God, I don't think either one of us are in any position to say who's good and who's evil. Why don't you just ask your question? We were discussing the disciples. What color were they? Well, I don't think we know that for certain. But they were Hebrews, were they not? That's right. As was Jesus. Jesus was also a Hebrew. Why don't you just ask your question? What color were the original Hebrews? I have told you that we don't know that for certain. Then you can't believe for certain that Jesus was white. This movie has a lot to say, actually, about religion, much as it has to say about race, actually. And the religion of Islam first comes to Malcolm in prison, as he befriends and is eventually mentored by Baines, adroitly played by Albert Hall in this film's second most complex performance. You see, Baines is with the Nation of Islam, and while he's in prison, he's clearly focused on spreading the good word of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, played by Al Freeman Jr., who brings such warmth to his earlier scenes that it's all the more painful to see where he eventually goes. I have come to give you something which can never be taken away from you. I bring to you a sense of your own worth. The worth of one human being. The knowledge of self. Hall shares one astounding scene with Washington after their characters meet, where he enlightens Malcolm with some hard truths about the dictionary meanings of the words black and white. And there's others. Black male, black ball, black guard. Yeah, well, there's some more, right? Let's look up white. Read. White. Of the color of pure snow, uh, reflecting all the rays of the spectrum, the opposite of black. Uh, free from spot or blemish, innocent, pure, huh, 
something without evil intent. And it's also here where we really start to see Denzel shine playing someone with a fierce chip on his shoulder. But he's also finding better ways now to articulate what he's feeling. And he becomes the charismatic, challenging voice that we eventually know as Malcolm X. And once he's out of prison, he humbly joins up with Elijah Muhammad, and we then start to see him speaking in public, on soapboxes around street corners, wearing those all-important brow-lined glasses. Yeah, you know the ones. (laughs) They've become so iconic, these glasses, I'd actually only known them as, quote, Malcolm X glasses for decades after first seeing this. And Denzel not only wears them well, but he utterly dominates the screen during these sequences. Why, you can't even get drugs in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get prostitution in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get gambling in Harlem without the white man's permission. Every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle, that's a government seal you're breaking. Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok. This is what he does. He pulls off Malcolm's rapid-fire oratory skills with a plum, and there's always a bit of sly humor sprinkled throughout, especially in one scene that he makes right in front of a church as it lets out. As folks are leaving, he uproariously tells them how surprised he is that there is no heaven outside waiting for them. It's funny and defiant, and Denzel brings so much joy to these moments that you cannot help but be sucked in. He has become a true believer in this cause, to the point that he seems to positively relish the opportunity to spread it. Shorty, is that you, brother? Praise be to Allah. Now, this is exactly what I'm talking about, the slave mentality, the slave mind. This brother and I, we had the slave mind. We used to rob together. We used to sleep with white women. We even went to prison together. Now, don't be surprised when I say we went to prison, because some of y'all still in prison right now. Prisons of your mind. Stand up, brother. Come on. The <laughs> brother's a little shy. Come on, brother, give me a hug. Yeah. That's all right, brother. Malcolm's rise, of course, also leads to some of his Islam brothers feeling jealous and or threatened by his growing influence. And that's because the deterioration of this relationship is much of what leads to an extremely tense final 30 minutes as we watch a newly inspired Malcolm back at home trying to make a fresh start. He is now, by this point, willingly broken off from the nation of Islam, yet is invigorated after taking his pilgrimage to Mecca in a gorgeous sequence actually filmed there where Spike and Master DP Ernest Dickerson, they just pull out all the stops. Just a gorgeous sequence. He's now starting a new congregation, with a more inclusive message. But by this point, tragically, it's too late for him, as not only has Elijah Muhammad now ordered a hit out on him, but the FBI is aggressively tracking his every move. The Oscar-nominated Angela Bassett, playing his wife Betty, she also really shines here, as we see the ramped-up paranoia take its toll on both of them. Now tell me, what's the matter with you? Wake up! Are you so committed that you blinded yourself? You so dedicated you can't face the truth? (laughs) Bane? He's the editor of the newspaper that you established. Ask him what? Ask him why your name hasn't even appeared in Muhammad Speaks in over a year. Ask him why you read front page on every paper in the country. Not one single sentence in your own. Yes? But do you know what Baines is doing? What is this Baines? Oh, you so blind. Of any portion of this movie, it's here where we start to see some of the more bravura work from Spike Lee, with shots and a moving camera effectively visualizing the escalating danger which Malcolm finds himself in. 
The ending is, of course, the ending. His assassination at the Audubon Ballroom and its immediate violent aftermath is portrayed as unflinchingly brutal. The stark imagery of several seemingly upright African Americans trying so savagely to kill each other, it carries quite a sting to it, as I'm sure was Spike's intention. Of course, Spike cannot resist the urge to still end the story present day, which was a very 90s trope for historical dramas, and probably reached its nadir a few years later with Spielberg and Saving Private Ryan. Sorry, I just have real issues with the ending of that movie. Tell me I have led a good life. What? Tell me I'm a good man. This brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Because music is essential to film. As far as modern masters of the needle drop, Spike Lee is right up there alongside Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese. And for an epic movie like this, that makes it all the more difficult to just pick one. And over the final 30 minutes of this movie, including the end credits, we hear three notable needle drops. The first one was used for both the original teaser trailer and what I would consider to be one of the tenser sequences in this movie. We kick off at the Audubon Ballroom in New York the night before Malcolm's last speech. And it's hopping. There's a youth dance. It's a good crowd of folks just kicking it to the catchy 1965 dance classic Shotgun by Junior Walker and the All-Stars. What's tragic is while we see this crowd of kids just dancing and having a good time, we see several assassins dispatched by the Nation of Islam casing the ballroom, walking amongst the crowd ominously. It's a stark contrast seeing these angry, determined faces amidst a raucous crowd of kids just having a good time, and with the boisterous saxophone hook of this song in the background. Then for the very next scene, actually, we cut to the next day, and we follow Malcolm's final walk to the Audubon. This even leads to Spike's one use of his signature double dolly shot as the camera is directed right at Malcolm, facing front, walking towards what would be his final appearance. Playing over this final walk and a montage of the lead-up to his appearance, where we see both the assassins and Betty and the kids all heading to the ballroom, we hear the gorgeous 1964 soul classic, A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke, who was actually very good friends with Malcolm, and they both died within three months of each other. The song is a beautiful mid-tempo ballad, which is equal parts mournful and uplifting. It's quite the inspired music choice for a beautiful sequence. I go to the movie And finally, to bring a modern touch to the soundtrack, there's the song Revolution from the 90s hip-hop collective Arrested Development. I remember when this came out, I was really hyped that they were doing a song for the soundtrack, as I was a big fan of Arrested Development at the time. And then I remember being quite disappointed that we actually don't hear the song until the second half of the end credits. And it's a catchy, rousing song, but in retrospect, it did make sense to not include it during the movie, as it would have just sounded distractingly anachronistic. Stay tuned for the very end of this episode to hear the song. 
The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, this is a tricky one, as it can be hard to make a case for this film needing to be longer. It's already 190 minutes. However, I have to say that in retrospect, I would have preferred just a bit more time spent with Baines, played by Albert Hall, especially in the second half of this movie. Just such a compelling character. In just a couple of key moments in that part of the movie, Hall does an effective job of portraying someone whose ego has gotten the better of him, fearing that his protege, Malcolm, had overshadowed him. I think. We watch Baines gradually undercut Malcolm in his discussions with Elijah Muhammad. Minister Baines, can you please tell us who bombed the house? Well, we feel it's a publicity stunt on the part of Malcolm X, but we hope it isn't a case of, well, if he can't keep the house, we won't get it either. Leading to a severed relationship, which never really heals from that point on. And I say, I think, because as good as Hall is in those scenes... I could have used just a bit more of him to flesh out exactly why he had soured on Malcolm so much. This same man whom he went to such pains to help redeem while they were in prison together. Now, it might be a small quibble, but it might also be this film's biggest narrative weakness. Albert Hall is delivering a strong performance, but we never get to see at least one moment of these two characters alone around this point in the story to help bring that relationship full circle. And now the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. The most gratifying sequence occurs about 100 minutes in, in which we see Malcolm in his full glory. Yep, I'm talking about the signature scene. One night in Harlem, when Malcolm is called to action by non-Muslims, who tell him that one of his Muslim brothers has been beaten up and detained by the police. We see him walk into the precinct, very confidently, and he demands to see Brother Johnson. Now, at first, the police at the desk dismiss him. But when he tells them to look out their window right behind them, well, they see two long rows of Muslim brothers, dressed like Malcolm in long overcoats, all standing at attention in the street. I suggest you look outside that window. Jimmy, come here, sir. Yes, we intend to see Brother Johnson. Who the hell are they supposed to be? They're brothers of Brother Johnson. Of course these cops let him see Johnson right after. Johnson's badly injured. He demands that they take him to a hospital. An ambulance pulls up to take him there. And then Malcolm leads his brothers in a brisk march to that hospital. Other folks start to join in. And we even hear Terrence Blanchard's rousing score start to kick in. A bit on the nose with the music, as it sounds very much like a military march, but the whole sequence just kills regardless. We are seeing a leader rise to prominence. It's exciting, and it feels dangerous, too. And it culminates with Malcolm smiling at that street officer. Nice cameo by the late, great Peter Boyle, by the way. And then raising his hand and pointing his finger up in that iconic manner as they all just calmly disperse one by one. That's too much power for one man to have. And now the final category, which is the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Malcolm X is a towering achievement of an epic for which Spike Lee deserves enormous kudos for pulling it all together. It has so many standout sequences with hardly a weak moment among them. But at the end of the day, this is even more so Denzel Washington's movie, as I would be even comfortable proclaiming his performance as the best singular acting performance of my lifetime. He inhabits this role at both the proudest and the least flattering moments. Those early scenes of young Malcolm just cluelessly hoofing around Harlem, looking all wide-eyed, they're critical to this story. And by the time of filming, Denzel was already 37 years old. 
but no matter because he just sells the hell out of this stage of Malcolm's life with a looser posture and more open facial expressions. It makes his evolution into a serious commanding activist who's always upright that much more impressive. For recreating an extraordinary life in the most thorough and engaging manner possible, Denzel Washington is your MVP. Again, if I hadn't done the play and hadn't got the response, I might have felt that okay. way. Okay, fair enough. I knew I could play the part. Yeah. I had the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and because it was Spike, yeah. we, I had the freedom to fail, to try mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. I would put speeches together. They just kept loading the, the, the cameras. Mm-hmm. I kept talking. I talked anything. White <laughs> shoes. Oh, that's the black man is trying to get on top of the white man. <laughs> And he tries to muzzle us with those socks. That's the black man that he's strangling from every side. So it's our job to turn that white man, you know. You You could just go on and on and on. So you could, I I would learn all of his speeches and just go. And Spike just kept loading the camera. My rating for Malcolm X would be five stars out of five. Happy 30th anniversary to what I would consider one of the best biopics ever made. It's definitely also a high watermark for both Spike and Denzel. Oh, and along those lines, Denzel's birthday is on the 28th, the day after this episode will be released. Happy 68th birthday to our greatest living actor. And if you're looking to watch Malcolm X, it's currently streaming on Paramount Plus and HBO Max. And that ends another bamboozled review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Generations of good people and cycles of poverty It bothers me, so I ask myself I say, how you doing as much as you can for the struggle? No. Am I doing as much as I can for the struggle? No. Then why do I cry when my people are in trouble? No. My ancestors slapped me in the face and said, Go!